0: be looking at verses 9 through 43 let me open in prayer Lord we come to you wanting to hear you speak Lord, this is uh, just a mere man presenting your word, and yet you speak through donkeys, you speak through instruments. And so would you cause us to hear your voice, and may we come to you, our Father, our Shepherd, and our friend. It's in your Son's name we pray, amen. Well, Don Carson recounts living in Germany, trying to improve his German, and while he was there studying, he became friends with another student who was from West Africa. And as they got to know each other, Don noticed an interesting thing, and that is once or twice a week, his friend would go off to the red light district. And so, since they were friends, Don asked him, What would you do if you found out your wife was doing the same thing? And he quickly responded, Well, I'd kill her. And he said, Well, that's a bit of a double standard, isn't it? His friend responded, Well, you don't understand where I'm coming from. This is okay for men to do, but Women are not allowed to do this. Well, Don replied, but you told me that you were raised in a mission school. You know that the God of the Bible doesn't have double standards like that. His friend brightly smiled and said, ah, God is good. He's bound to forgive us. That's his job. And think sadly exactly that's the way many people, even many Christians, think about God. Ah, God's good. He's going to forgive sin. It's no big deal. God is going to forgive us. Or some people, well, God doesn't even exist, so what I do doesn't even matter. When I die, I die. And yet there's the other extreme where people live in fear. Every single time they sin, have I lost my salvation? Have I ruined my relationship with God? Well, how should we think about our sin? Well, this morning we see the aftermath of God's response to Solomon and his sin we see that while it is very true and we should hold to the fact that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us, we should not take that to mean that we should be flippant about sin or uncaring about our sin. Often what we fail to see is that in God's call for us to confess and to believe in his son's work, we're also called to repent of our sins, that we're called to have humility and confess that we deserve consequences. And so we forsake them and cling to the forgiveness that comes in Christ. This morning as we look at these verses, we're going to see first in verses 9 through 13. That in response to Solomon's sin, the Lord tears. Then in verses 14 through 25, in response to Solomon's sin, the Lord raises Satan's, And then in response, the Lord Brings new hope. This is a longer passage, so we'll read each section as we get there. So look down at chapter 11 of 1 Kings, beginning in verse 9 through verse 13. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And it commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he, Solomon, did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So since Solomon has clung to these wives, these women in love, and worshiped their gods and forsaken God, God responds with anger. You see, Solomon had received something incredible, something that very few people have ever been able to experience. And Solomon experienced it twice. The living God appeared to Solomon. But the problem is, Solomon did not act appropriately because of, in light of this amazing privilege, he have had. You know the problem Solomon had, and we have, is sometimes we don't learn from our experiences. At the same time, we sometimes think, well, if we can only give people the right experiences, if they can only see and feel and understand the right things, then their lives will change. If you were around when the movie "The Passion of the Christ" came out. You probably got several emails like I did. Oh, if we can only get people to see the film, they will be saved. And yet, though I'm sure the movie greatly impacted many people, there were not mass revivals. Well, why? Because experiences alone do not change the human heart. And Solomon, who had two of the greatest experiences, still clung to others in love. Jesus explains this in Luke 16:31. There he tells the parable of this rich man who had a great life in Lazarus, this poor man. At the end of the parable, the rich man who's now suffering wants to go back and tell his brothers, look, you need to change your life. You need to believe God and love him or else you will suffer. And at the end of the parable, it says, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither if someone rises from the dead, Will they be persuaded? For those who don't want to believe, signs and experiences will not create belief. Yet for those who are inclined to love and believe, they encourage and foster our love and belief. We even see this in what Jesus says in that parable, because another Lazarus was raised from the dead. Now just imagine that. You know this man's been dead three days, and he comes back to life with that type of experience you would want to say to the person who brought him back to life, I want to worship you. And yet, in John 11:53, 53, it says, so from that day on, the Pharisees made plans to put him to death. They had this great experience showing who God was, and yet it didn't lead to love and delight and submission to God. It led to rebellion against him. They wanted to kill him. Or even when Jesus rose from the dead, The evidence of that did not compel them to believe, compelled them to make up a story, to excuse it away. And so amazing experiences, they don't always lead to faith, but they do lead to one thing. They lead to greater accountability. Thus Jesus warns of certain Jewish towns who will have a greater day of judgment than non-Jewish towns, Gentile towns, because of all they have seen and heard. Thus Solomon by being able to be with God twice. Having God appear to him twice is under greater accountability. And so God responds with anger to what he did. But it's not only that God appeared to him twice. It's also that God had commanded him regarding this very thing. Flip over in 1 Kings to chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 14. And chapter 3 is the story where God first appears to Solomon. And Solomon, rather than asking for wealth, rather than asking for a great empire, he asked for wisdom. And notice, though, how God responded in chapter 3, verse 14. After he says, because of this, I will bless you, he then says, and if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So Solomon knew when God appeared, he told him this, and he even knew it so that Solomon prayed this flip over to chapter eight twenty five there Solomon is in the midst of dedicating the temple, and in this prayer first kings eight twenty five Solomon prays now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant, David, my Father, what you've promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit me sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me." As you have walked before me. So Solomon himself knows I need to walk faithfully to have God's blessing. Then, after the dedication of the temple, God appeared to Solomon the second time. And look down in chapter 9, verses 4 through 7. There it says, God speaking, And as for you, Solomon, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying, You should not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. So Solomon had these great experiences. He knew exactly what he needed to do, and yet he failed. Thus the Lord told Solomon, since he did not keep the covenant nor keep his commands and statutes, God would tear the kingdom from Solomon. Now these words would have startled Solomon because tearing the kingdom is a phrase that was used before. It was used before by the prophet Samuel who was told to go to King Saul. And it says in 1 Samuel 15, as Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirts of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel away from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So Solomon, the wise king is now hearing that he has fallen to the level of being like King Saul and the kingdom like it was taken from Saul will be taken away though not completely because it will not happen in his day and one tribe will be kept. And then we're going to severely misapply this passage if we don't remember the context. What is the context? It's that is Solomon's issue is not just sin, because God does forgive sin, it's unrepentant sin. And to show this, turn over a couple books, back a couple books to Judges chapter ten. Because in Judges chapter ten, we see a very interesting story between Israel and the Lord. Look at Judges chapter ten, verses ten through sixteen. The context is Israel has, again, sinned. They've gone after other gods. And notice verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We've sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and have served the Baals. So this looks great. They admit their sin. They confess it to God. And they spell out what they've done. We've gone and served other gods. But notice, though, God's response. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians? and from the Amorites, and from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. In other words, God's reminding them, I've saved you numerous times before. But he goes on, he says, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in this time of distress. In other words, God tells them that he will not save them. They should go to the very gods they're serving to save them. And because of this, he will save them no longer. So what is the point? Is the point, well, look, Israel's sinned too much. They've gone beyond God's grace that they can no longer be brought back. Well, no, and we see that by what happens next. Look down again. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over their misery. So what is the rest of the story showing? It's saying that while they were confessing with their lips, Oh, we've sinned. We're so sorry. they still in their house had all their idols. While their lips were confessing their guilt, their heart was still clinging in love to the very thing they said they were sorry for. They were trying to manipulate God. Come save us when we want, but we don't really want to serve and worship you. That's why they were confessing their idolatry while they still clung to their idols in their homes. And now, though, at the end, they admit their guilt. They admit, look, we don't deserve help. And what do they do? They put away their gods. Unlike the man who said, ah, God is good. He's bound to forgive. That's his job. This story shows God's not bound to forgive while we continue in the very sin that we're confessing. See, genuine confession is an owning of the guilt of our sin. It's the owning of we deserve punishment for it. And it's the seeking of to put the sin away from us. Now, of course, we will never do that perfectly in this life, but there should be a desire to repent and a desire and practice of putting those things away. And when Israel did that, God responded. Thus, we shouldn't take from 1 Kings chapter 11 that every time we sin, God will take something from us. That may happen, it may not. But Solomon specifically had this happen because he was Unrepentant, that he was still clinging to these women that he loved. So God, in response, out of love, we'll see, tears the kingdom from him. So we should confess and we should repent. But God will not only tear the kingdom from Solomon, but also we see from verses 14 through 25 that the Lord raises Satan. Verse 14. Through 25 it reads, And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the royal house in Edom. For when David was in Edom, and Joab, the commander of the army, went up to bury the slain, he struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel remained there six months until he'd cut off every male in Edom. But Hadad fled to Egypt together with certain Edomites of his father's servants, Hadad still being a little child. They set out from Midian and came to Paran and took with them from Paran and came to Egypt, to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who gave him a house and assigned him an allowance, of food, and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him in marriage the sister of his own wife, the sister of Topenes, the queen. And the sister of Topenes bore him Gunabath, his son, whom Topenes weaned in Pharaoh's house. And Gunabath was in Pharaoh's house among the sons of Pharaoh. But when Hadad heard in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me depart, that I may go out to my own country. But Pharaoh said to him, What have you lacked with me that you are now seeking to go to your own country? And he said to him, Only let me depart. God also raised up as an adversary to him Rezin, the son of Eliada, who had fled from his master Hadadezer, king of Zobah. And he gathered men about him and became leader of a marauding band. After the killing by David. And they went to Damascus and lived there and made him king in Damascus. He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Had did, and he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. So in response to Solomon's turning from the Lord, the Lord raises up two external adversaries against him. The interesting thing is the word for adversary is actually the word Satan. Now, the point is not that these two men are incarnations of the devil, but rather they show what the work of the devil is. The devil, Satan, is an adversary. An adversary is someone who goes against, and the devil specifically goes against God in his ways. You may be familiar with the story in Mark chapter 8 where Jesus asks the disciples, Who do people say that I am? And some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, they tell him. And then Jesus says, But who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for man did not reveal this to you, but Father who is in heaven. But then Jesus goes on and he tells them of how he's going to go to Jerusalem. And he's going to be betrayed. And he's going to be crucified and rise again. And Peter, feeling confident, takes Jesus under his arm and takes him aside and says, Jesus, you shouldn't talk like that. And he rebukes Jesus. And yet then, it says, Jesus turned to the disciples and rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Now, I'm sure after Jesus rose and went and ascended into heaven, after being with his disciples, the early church asked the disciples many questions. What was it like to be with Jesus? You know, did y'all joke around when no one was around? What did y'all do? Did he ever have nicknames? And John, oh yeah, he called me the disciple whom he loved. And Peter was actually, his name, Simon. Peter means rock and actually Sometimes Jesus called Peter Satan. Oh, <laughs> that was funny. Just, Peter, like, oh, yeah, that was awkward when that happened. But why, why would Jesus call Peter Satan? Because Peter was saying, Jesus, you need to reign by conquering through military might. You don't need to reign by the cross, you don't need to suffer. And that was an adversary to God's plan. God's plan to redeem the world was through the suffering and death of his son and anyone even Peter who is against that who is an adversary to that is a Satan and anytime we are acting against God way God's ways we are acting like Satan you know we are the image of God and we can reflect God or if we're going against God we can reflect Satan and here these men are acting as adversaries the first one is Hadad, an Edomite. And you may know that Edomites are the descendants of Esau. Go back in your biblical history. Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac had Jacob and Esau, twins. And one day, Jacob was making stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he wanted it so bad. And it tells us in Genesis 25 that Jacob's stew was red. And since the Hebrew word for red is Edom, the passage says, therefore his name being Esau, was called Edom now here we are centuries later and Jacob and Esau or Israel and Edom are still battling it out because David went with Joab and they went and killed all the Edomites and they killed him except we need to realize something the Bible talks like we talk if you're talking to me and you say hey what'd you do yesterday I say I worked all day you liar I knew you ate lunch you didn't work all day Well, okay, I'm just speaking loosely. Because here, you might be going, wait, verses 15 through 16, it says they killed all the Edomites. So where's this? Hey, Dad, he's an Edomite. Where is he coming from? Well, the Bible talks like we do. We don't always talk scientifically precise on everything. Yes, the point is they killed most of the Edomites. It is true in what it said, but the Bible talks like we do. Back to the story, though. Hey, Dad flees to Egypt. And interestingly, what does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh gives him a house. He gives him an allowance. When he has a son, who is given the wife from Pharaoh's sister-in-law, he then raises raises the child in his own house. Now, why is this all interesting? Well, because who did Solomon marry? The daughter of Pharaoh. Solomon's father-in-law is raising up Solomon's own adversary. And that will be important in a minute. Hadad, though, he names his son Gunaboth, which is kind of the root idea of to steal. He's naming his son to steal. Why would you name your son to steal? Because you're a bitter man about what's happened to your land. And what a bitter people often do? They bide their time. And then they come. And that's what Hadad does. He bides his time. And he finally learns. Joab and David are gone, and he begins to be an adversary to Solomon from the south, from Egypt. But there's also an adversary from the north, from Syria. That's Rezin, the son of Eliada, And there we hear of him fleeing from his king, probably from when King David comes and attacks. You can read that in 2 Samuel 8. And David defeated many of them, but then after David, now Solomon's reign, Rezin gathers other guerrilla fighters. They go back and recapture the capital of Syria, Damascus. And from there, they're an adversary from the north. So adversaries from the north and adversaries from the south, or Satan's, are bothering Solomon. And I think all of this is really driving home Solomon's folly. There's a story that Jesus tells in Matthew 7. There's of two men who are building a house, and one man, he builds it on a rock. Whereas the second man builds his house upon sand. And when the storms of life come, the only home that can withstand it is the one built on the rock. And Jesus calls that man wise, and the one who built upon the sand a fool. The challenge, though, is we're, what we're often told is a wise life is often what God says is folly. And what often Jesus says is wise, the rock, is often told us to be folly. Leo Tolstoy wrote a short story entitled, Ivan the Fool. Ivan had three siblings, a sister who was dumb, meaning couldn't speak, and two brothers, one who went off to join the military and was going through the ranks, and another who went off to start business. And Ivan was a fool because Ivan, he just stayed at home, and he took care of his sister and his parents. And throughout life, he would have great opportunities and said, I don't need that, and he would Be generous, and he would give, and his brothers kept growing in prominence and wealth. Yet Ivan, the fool, kept being generous and sharing and caring for others. And Tolstoy masterfully writes the story that at the end you realize, actually, the fool was not Ivan. It was the brothers in their unending pursuit for power and possessions. Ivan, who looks like a fool, actually was wise. And that is what is happening here. Because the wisdom of the world says to Solomon, you have kingdoms around you. Those kingdoms have been hostile. So what you need to do, Solomon, is you need to have marriage alliances. So you need to go marry the Pharaoh's daughter. That will secure your southern border. That will make you strong. And yet, where does Solomon's own adversary rise up from? Egypt. The wisdom of the world did not work. Even Jeroboam, who will read up next, who will end up taking the kingdom from Solomon's son, will find shelter there. Only the truly wise are those who hear the words of Jesus and do them. They will build their house on the rock. It may not always appear that what Jesus tells us will bring a blessed life. It's better to serve rather than be served. I should return that evil with good. I should forgive that person rather than holding that thought in my mind for years about what they've done to me. I should give sacrificially. And yet Jesus says, if you'll build your life on my words, you will have built your life on the rock. You will build it on what lasts. Notice, though, something important. While these Satan's, these adversaries arise against Solomon. They are not outside of God's control. Look down again at verse 14 of chapter 11. It says, And the Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon. God was in control the whole time. If you read the book of Job, it's God who asked Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? And when the conversation regarding Job went on, God set limits on what Satan could do. Now, Job is a slightly different story because Job was not sinning in any way. But the same idea holds true that whether, whatever the reason for the Satan or the adversary coming in your life, God is in control of it. I often, well, three times a week to be more specific, take our dog for a walk. And if I go one route, there's this dog that comes charging to the fence and barking loudly. And the first few times, it, Kind of jolt you. You're, uh, this dog barking. But then after a while, I or you and your walks realize something. There's a fence. It can bark all at once. And it's not going to do a thing. It's just a bunch of barking. But it is still scary. We should think of Satan that way. He is real. And only a fool would go up to that dog and stick a finger through the fence. I'm not going to mess with the dog. But I realize the dog is fenced it can only get so far and god has allowed adversaries or trials we might say they're fenced in they'll never go beyond god's limits so we can trust that god uses them even for our good but though life is growing dark for solomon for israel the lord brings new hope and we see that in verses 26 through 43 let's read those verses Jeroboam, the son of Nebat an Ephraimite of Zerida a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out to Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. Then Ahijah laid hold on the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord the God of Israel Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom of Israel from the hand of Solomon, and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David, his father, did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant whom I choose who kept my commandments and my statutes but I'll take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you 10 tribes yet to his son I will give one tribe that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem the city where I've chosen to put my name and I will take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel and if you'll listen to all that I command me command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did. I will be with you, and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you, and I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon, all that he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the time that Israel reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. So now we're told of this new man, Jeroboam, who will get the kingdom from Solomon. and He's from Ephraim, and his mother's now a widow. And he was a very good servant for Solomon, and he was then made overseer of the labor. But then the story transitions to tell of Ahijah the prophet coming and telling him he'll be the new king. And with this, we enter a new phase in the books, First and Second Kings, because now along with kings, we'll learn a lot about prophets, sometimes even more about prophets. But Ahijah comes, and he takes this new garment, and he rips it apart. And prophets will often do these things signs to symbolize what will happen, and he gives, or tells, sorry, Jeroboam to take ten of them, and Solomon's family will have one. Now, those of you who are quick on your mathematical toes are going, ten, one, two, that doesn't make twelve. Well, what happened to the twelfth tribe? Well, the short answer is, I don't know, but the long answer is, four options. Well, it could be, if you look at a map of the geography of Israel, the tribe's to the north and the south. It could be kind of geographical breaking. Or if you look at the tribe, Simeon is completely enclosed within the tribe of Judah. So maybe they're kind of in there. Or it could be that Benjamin, if you flip over to chapter 12, verse 21, they are listed with Judah. So perhaps that's it. Or maybe it's the Levites who have no possession of land, but they're still a tribe. I'm not sure which one, but I'm quite confident. Prophet Ahijah could do his math. There's some reason behind it. But the bigger bigger point is they are going to have the kingdom taken from them because they failed to remain faithful to God. They forsook him and pursued the gods of the nations around them. And Jeroboam will become king over these ten tribes. And God will give him all his heart's desire. And he emphasizes to Jeroboam the very thing that Solomon did not continue to do, and that is if you'll be faithful to me, you will be blessed. Now I think there's an important thing going on here. And that is we're being shown your life is not determined by the choices of others. Now that could be misunderstood, so let me explain. What I mean is, yes, we all have only certain options in life because of many factors we don't control. But you may have had a horrible family. You may have a horrible situation in life right now. You may live in a culture that you feel is against you, but none of that makes you sin. God gives you the choice. How are you going to respond? Or it might be the other way. You might have a wonderful family. You might have a great situation. You may love our culture, and yet none of that means you're going to do what honors God. There is a choice before you, and God allows all of us to choose, will we, follow him or not yes some of those things make our life easier some of them make them harder but Jeroboam is not trapped because of Solomon and so Jeroboam has the opportunity to bless his life in his kingdom if he will be faithful to the Lord and yet the flip side is that while Solomon started well he has now ended horribly and the kingdom will be taken but notice Verse 39, because it says, but not forever. As one person aptly put it, they are afflicted, but not abandoned. Unlike Saul, who had the kingdom completely taken away, a part will remain with Solomon's children, with David's children. Well, why? Because of what God promised David in 2 Samuel 7:14 through 16. There he said, I will be to him, your son, a father. And he shall be to me as a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And God is keeping his promise to David that his descendants may be disciplined. They may receive the discipline of the Lord, but they will not be forever removed. We have this same blessing. This is what was read for us earlier by Jerry, Hebrews 12, 5-6. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom you receives. Now, you may not think of discipline with warm, fuzzy words, but God disciplines in love. Think about the children you know who go undisciplined and how they turn out. I remember reading of a woman who was growing up and her brother was quite rebellious and the parents went to counseling and the counselor said, he just has to work his anger out, so just let him kick the couch. Just let him let him, blow that steam off. And she said, Well, as he grew up, he kicked couches, and he threw things. As he got in high school, he kicked things and threw things. And it continued and continued continued. until now he's in prison because he never learned to stop kicking couches and throwing things. He never was under the hand of a loving parent who said, You don't need to blow this off. You need to stop because that is wrong. You know, a loving parent never says, Oh, I love them too much to discipline them. If you love them, you say, I love you too much not to discipline you. Now, yes, this is not easy. Hopefully, you don't find it enjoyable, not saying that. But out of love, a parent disciplines their child. Last football season, a star Clemson football player dressed out for the game, but he didn't play. And after the game, the coach was asked, well, hey, why didn't so-and-so get on the field? And he said, well... He was receiving a little discipline for some things he did off the field, and we just need to take care of that. And he then said, some people may say he's in my doghouse. I like to say he's in the love shack. And God loves us so much that he'll put us in the love shack of discipline. He loves us and says, because I love you, I'm not going to let you continue in your sin. I'm not going to go, ah, it's no big deal. I just forgive. That's who I am. It's no big deal. And Solomon, though, did not learn. So now what does he do? Verse 40, he seeks to kill Jeroboam. We've come full circle from Saul to wonderful King David and looking great. Now Solomon's doing the very thing Saul did. It's kind of like Animal Farm where the animals take over the farm because the humans are so horrible. And by the end of the book, the animals are just like the humans again. Nothing has changed. And so the story ends with Solomon's death and Rehoboam reigning in his place. But the big question of this chapter is, how does God respond to sin? Yes, we have the amazing and wonderful promise that God forgives us. God, in his mercy, and his grace, sent his son to die for us. The question is, how do we respond? Yes, we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord. We believe in our heart that he died and he will that he raised jesus from the dead but part of that confession is repentance turning from sin saying i'm not going to love the very thing that i just confessed to god as sin that sent jesus to death out of love and belief i'm going to turn from that and we know when we do when we confess when we trust when we repent god is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness so may we confess may we trust and may we turn from those sins so that we may cling to our savior let's pray oh lord sin can seem so appealing it can seem that it is the right way and yet it is the sand that we want to build our house upon lord would you give us hearts and eyes and ears for you that we would not just confess with our lips but our hearts would love you and we would build our house on you, the rock. Forgive us for our sins and help us to not cling to them, but to flee from them and cling to you, our hope and our Savior. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.